0: All right, so this is one of, those, this one of those passages, this week and next week, one of those passages um, or two of those passages that if it weren't that we were on a schedule and we're, we're on a schedule of, of preaching through key passages in the New Testament, and if it weren't that we are on a schedule, they would be the kind of passages that we would certainly skip parts of it because they can make us a little bit uncomfortable in a lot of ways. All right, so, um, so just be, be forewarned uh, about that. Um, and you may not see this one coming, <laughs> because it's kind of hidden at the end, the, the, the harder part of this. So, uh, but I'm not going to skip over it. I could have, but I'm not going to skip over it, because I think it's really important that we not skip over it. Now, I want to talk uh, today about oh, how the name of Jesus, how the name of Jesus brings motivation to our Christian life. It... it The name of Jesus propels us forward in the Christian life. It gives motivation, it gives us power in the Christian life. And the reason I'm saying the name of Jesus, and not just saying Jesus or the Holy Spirit, the reason I'm saying the name of Jesus is because of our passage today. It uses that phrase, the name of Jesus, or just the name, repeatedly. In fact, because we're going to be in the book of Acts for several weeks, we're going to discover it's used a lot by the early church. So the Acts tells the story of what happened after Jesus resurrected and ascended. And so um, in order to uh, kind of explain or to illustrate uh, what that phrase or the, the importance of that phrase, I want to tell you a story. And it comes from, it comes from a, a favorite author of mine, Lois uh, Verberg, who, who is my go-to person. She's written several books that help. Westerners enter into the world of the first century, Judaism especially. And, and so uh, she tells a story in trying to explain how the name of Jesus, uh, or the name, names, even names in general, uh, packed some, some pretty important content in the New Testament times, as well as in the Old Testament times. Excuse me. So she tells a story about her grandfather, and her grandfather was a Lutheran missionary in Madagascar. And one night, he gets a knock at the door, and he goes and answers the door, and this person says, Fanella has a devil in him, and you need to come and cast him out. Now... Um, he had met Fenella earlier that day. Fenella had come to him with uh, charms, divination tools, all kinds of stuff that he used to contact spirits, and he had handed them to the, to the grandfather, the missionary, and it said, take these. I'm, I'm tired of serving the devil. I want to I stop serving the devil. Take these and burn them. Uh, so he had met him earlier in the day, but now he's over in the village, and he's uh, pacing back and forth and is arms are wild and his eyes are wild, and he's foaming at the mouth, and villagers are around him, surrounding him, and uh, probably partially to protect Fenella from himself, uh, but mostly probably to to protect the rest of the villagers from this guy who is exhibiting um, demonic possession. And so he's on his way there, and he sees it, and he's like, "Ah, I've never done an exorcism uh, before. And uh, I never studied this in seminary. In fact, Verberg uh, says this. Uh, she says, uh, Lutherans, this is no knock at Lutherans. This would be the same for us, okay? Lutherans are good at liturgy, passing the peace, and serving jello salads. <laughs> Exorcisms just aren't on that list. Exorcism on our all right, we don't do jello salads, but uh, I don't think Lutherans do anymore either. I don't, I don't think some of you can... Can tell me. Uh, but exorcisms are just not on that list. And so he doesn't know what he's going to do. Um, so he's going through his mind and he thinks, well, I, I've read about this in the Bible and they, there is something that they do every single time. And so he decides to do exactly what the apostles did throughout the book of Acts. Uh, he comes up to Fenella, he puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, In the name of Jesus, get out. And Fenella falls backwards. And he's out for a while, and when he wakes up, he's back to himself. Next morning, he's baptized, and he never experiences possession again. So what's in the name of Jesus? What is it? What's up with the name of Jesus? We're going to look at that uh, specifically and all the implications of that in Acts chapter 3. So turn to Acts chapter 3 if you haven't already. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. Um, And uh, if you have a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the NIV, the New International Version. Okay, so what's up with the name of Jesus? Three really important things, all right? So I try to take all of them and kind of get them down into three because it's never a sermon if it's not three. All right, so the first one is power, power. Jesus' name represents his power and can release his power represents his power, and can release his power. So in the early days of the Christian movement, uh, the Christians, they were not called Christians. They were, they were Jewish. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah they'd been waiting for. And they continued to uh, participate in, temple, in, in gatherings in the temple, particularly the prayer gatherings, which happened at 9 a.m., noon, and 3 every single day. And so Peter and John, two of the major disciples, are on their way, they're walking to the temple in order to participate in the 3 p.m. prayer time when this happens. So look at verse 1. One day Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate uh, called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. That we learn later in the story part, we're not going to read, that he's, been, he's not been able to walk for 40 years, all right? So, when, verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the hand... at what had happened to him. So there it was, you heard the words, in the name of Jesus, Uh, in this case, they don't always do that, but in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the town where he was from, walk. Uh, In the name, what does that mean? What does it carry? Well, we get an idea of this power idea in the name when you look at chapter four, and I'm I'm gonna read you just the passage, because Peter and John get arrested. And when they get arrested, uh, they get brought before the same people who condemn Jesus. We don't know how much time has gone by, but all the same major players are there. They bring Peter and John in, and they ask them this question in chapter 4, verse 7. They say, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. Here's a the question. By what power or in what name did you do this? Now, we don't talk that way, so we have to understand. We have to enter into their world and understand why would they say, and in what name? Now, power, we might understand. By what power, we might get kind of the idea. For them, it was two choices. It was either God or it was evil spirits. That's what they're trying to find out. And if it's anything other than God, okay, the God that they all worship, then it is an evil spirit in their minds, all right? So, um, but what the name? So, part of what they're asking, what name did you invoke? Because again, it's not common for us, we don't really hear very much invoking of names for power. Um, in, in our world, in our you know, daily lives. But for them, uh, it was a usual thing. When people uh, went in for all kinds of things to their own temples, not to the Jewish temples, there would be names that would be invoked. It would be like an incantation that would be used to try to release power from some god or some spirit that they knew the name of. So, this is the answer that they give. They say, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth... Whom you crucified, and whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. It is by that name, by Jesus. So he says, I was invoking, Peter says, I was invoking the name of Jesus. His name is power. That's the power that was there. Now mixed into the name is also authority. This one we might, in our everyday lives, be able to associate with a little bit more. So in the name means, by his authority, I did this. For example, if you watch an old movie, sometimes the coppers are chasing after the criminals, and what do they yell? They say, stop in the name of the law. Okay, I don't think any, any policemen do that today anymore, but stop in the name of the law. When they say stop in the name of the law, what they're saying is don't stop because I've got this uniform or I'm a, of a police person. Stop because I represent the law, and the law is what you have to actually have to listen to. You have to pay, pay attention to. So when Verberg, Lois Verberg's grandfather said, in the name of Jesus, wa- um, g- get out to, to the demon, he was invoking the authority of Jesus. He didn't come in and say, well, I don't know what to do. Get out of him. You know, Stop it. You know, he wasn't just like, it wasn't, he had no power or authority in himself. He is invoking a higher authority. In the name of Jesus, representing Jesus here in his authority, I am telling you to get out. And, um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's the same with Peter. Peter isn't, like, going to argue with the demon or with the, with the, the illness. He's not going to say soothing words over the illness. He actually is invoking a higher authority. He's invoking the authority of Jesus. So in Acts 3... Eleven through twenty-six. Peter preaches to the crowd because a, a crowd gathers. And one of the things, and you'll one of the reflection questions in your outlines, which um, if you're new here, they're they're inside here. Um, there are reflection questions in there. Is to look at his sermon because one of the things he does is he goes out of his way to say um, this is not a magical incantation type of name. I, I didn't invoke the name of Jesus like. People that you've seen invoke other names. This is not a magical incantation. This is, um, this is Jesus who is real, who is living, and who has authority and who has power. He is the one who has healed this, n- this man. And he talks about faith. And you see how he works faith in there. Faith interacting with the power of Jesus. Now, is, don't try this at home aspect to this that comes later in the book of Acts. Uh, there's these, these guys that are watching Paul casting out demons in the name of Jesus, because this happens every once in a while in the book of Acts. And, uh, and so they decide, hey, let's try it. Let's try that name. And they treat the name of Jesus as if it's a name, like a magical incantation. And so it's seven brothers, and, uh, and so they use the name of Jesus, and w- what happens is that the demon speaks back to them and says, I, I know... Uh, I know this Jesus, I know this Paul, but I don't know you. And the demon-possessed man jumps on him, starts beating him up. And it's really a humorous scene, because it ends with them running down the street, naked and bleeding <laughs> from, from the attack of this guy. It's kind of like, uh, the name of Jesus is not a magical incantation. It, it is really to be used only by those who are authorized to use his name, which are his followers. Which introduces one last idea. Okay, this is the third idea uh, behind name. Again, this this is stretching us. Okay, we're not. It's not our kind of language, but name has to do with character. God's name represents Himself and represents more than just Himself. Represents His character, who, who He is, what He, what defines who is it, wh- what He is. So, the, the, the name of God is important sometimes, and you'll see this in. In Acts, with regard to Jesus, sometimes you just mentioned the name, and it means God, or it means Jesus, the name. It represents uh, that person, and it represents their character. So the name of God is spoken of in the Bible as holy, absolutely holy, therefore to be revered. Uh, now we use this language, uh, you may have already thought about it, but when Jesus taught the disciples to pray what what did he tell him? he said he said i want you to say this i want you to say hallowed be your name hallowed be your name okay so we it's not like a foreign total foreign idea for people who pray the lord's prayer although we may not we may be praying it without realizing what we're talking about the name why holy, hallowed be your name which means May your name be revered as holy, which it is. May your name be revered as holy as it is. Okay, so why the name? Because the name represents God and his character. It represents God and his character. Hallowed be your name. Character traits and lifestyle choices. Okay, um, Okay, I jumped ahead. Let me just say this if the names of other gods in that time represented certain character traits. So if you don't use the name of Jesus and you use the name of another god in the New Testament times or today, that name represents a different being or non-being, but represents what is thought to be a being, and represents a whole bunch of character traits that go with that name. And not only character traits, but lifestyle choices that go with that name. Because out of the character of whoever we believe is God, whatever we believe our God, our life flows from that. Doesn't matter. If you don't believe in God, your life will flow from that. Uh, you believe certain things about God, your life will flow. We, we, we live out what we believe and what we love and what we hold dear, um, whether we even can call it out uh, for what it is. So character traits and lifestyle choices that are the complete antithesis of what Jesus taught are contained in other names. So we can't just say, uh, well, okay, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Let's just, let's just put it there. You can't just say this other name for a God without tying in the character of what you believe that God is about. All right, now, the name is a big deal. The name is a big deal. Living in the name of Jesus. Three more points. So this is your second sermon today. Um, all of this has enormous, enormous implications uh, for our lives. In fact, we're called to live our entire life in the name of Jesus. I'm going to talk about three uh, implications, but I'm really not going to talk about the second and third. I'm just going to state them. The first one's where we're going to plant ourselves just for a few moments. So here's the first implication. We're called to reflect Jesus' character, his name, Jesus' character in our lives. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, this is a, an epistle of Paul. This is even, you know, this is well into the book of Acts that we meet Paul and he Plants churches and then he writes letters to them. And here's what he says. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now this, this verse is actually part of a longer paragraph or even a couple of paragraphs. And it summarizes everything that he's been saying from really verse 5 on. Or about verse 5 on. Where he's been talking about what it looks like to live in the name of Jesus. What it looks like to reflect the character traits of Jesus in our lives. To, to seek to do that through the help of God, through the Spirit working in us, through the transformation that he's bringing about in us, through us working in cooperation with the Spirit, what, what God wants from us, how he wants us to be living our lives. So he's been talking about this from verse 5. And then just in case he missed anything, he says, Whatever you do, whatever you do, be sure to do it in the name of Jesus. Meaning, reflecting the character of Jesus. Now, here are some of the things that are, that are covered in those verses. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So he says, let in your life, your sex life, your use of money, your uh, pursuit of pleasure, let it reflect the character of Christ. Let it reflect the character of Christ. Verse 8. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Okay, what comes out of your mouth, the words that you use, uh, the way that you live your life, there's there's no, it does not reflect the character of Christ to be flailing around in anger at the people around us, to lose control in anger, to stew in anger and become silent toward the people that were angry. That's not what reflects the character of Christ. That's what Christ is trying to change in us if we will cooperate with him to bring change to our hearts, to our our desires, all of that. Verse 9, do not lie to each other. Verse 12, clothe yourselves. This is what it looks like to live in the character of Christ. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You see how that just runs up against all those other things that have been mentioned. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. For each of us, um, if anyone has a grievance against someone, we should be forgiving type lives. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach. So be speaking to one another, encouraging one another. Even, you know, that, that loving kick in the pants to one another. We need to be doing that for one another with all wisdom, do it through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Just talking about gathering together with other believers and speaking to each other and encouraging each other. All right, so the first thing, one of the implications in the name of Jesus, we're supposed to live in the name of Jesus. Uh, second thing, we are called to seek health and wholeness in Jesus and extend it to others. We'll come back to this later uh, in Acts, but that's what Peter and the And and, uh, Peter and John do. They restore this man to health, but not just health, wholeness. He comes into the temple with him. He wasn't doing that before. That's when Jesus would heal people. He would take people who were considered ritually unclean and he would make them clean. And they would be able to participate in the life of the community again. It wasn't just about a healing. It was about participating in the life of the community. Number three, we're called to represent Jesus to others. To live in the name of Jesus, and because of the name of Jesus, we represent it. We have the authority. We are the ones that have been given the authority to represent him in a broken and hurting world that is far from him, and living on mission for him in that world, and even to the ends of the earth. It's not just about us. I have a relative who's always saying, why, you know, seeing me as a pastor, why are churches always sending people all over the world? I I keep, I don't know how many times I'm going to have to say it, well, it's... It's just Jesus told us to. (laughs) She believes in Jesus, so that works. (laughs) Jesus told us to. Uh, Try to remember that. (laughs) That's why we do it. All right. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky in the sermon. All right? And I could make the whole sermon about what I'm going to talk about next. And there's so much more to say. I mean, I woke up this morning going, oh, I wish I'd said. And then I read it over. I'm like, no, okay. I said what I need to say today. All right, so I'm going to say it again. Okay, this is, has to do with, with what Peter says a little bit later. And the topic is no other name. Um, so this is, this is I, I just want to share with you, this is the angle that I'm coming to. I could come at it from an angle, of some, some of you who are not yet Christians, and you're like, I could come at it from that angle and try to speak to you, and it would sound different than what I'm talking about. I'm talking to the insiders here. So you can listen in and understand how, what the Bible teaches us to think. Um, I, I'm telling you, if we don't get this no other name thing right, we are diluting our faith. We're diluting our faith of its power, of its purpose, the motivation. The things that propel us into living for Jesus, if you don't get this right, you're just chipping away at it. And you've got no reason to stay in it. All right? So, Peter is talking to those religious leaders. Turn to chapter 4, Acts chapter 4. Peter's talking to those religious leaders. They ask, by what power and in what name, or in what name, did you heal this man? And this is a little bit fuller answer. Look at verse 10, about halfway through verse 10. It is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. Jesus is the stone. Now, he's, he's quoting the Old Testament. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, thrown out when building a building. But he's become the chief cornerstone. He's become the, the cornerstone. All right. And then he says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There is no other name by which we must be saved. Now, I do a whole sermon on saved because we, we've taken what salvation means and in popular culture and even in popular church culture, we've reduced it into going to heaven. And salvation means so much more. It means wholeness. It means access to God. It means reconciliation with God. It means a relationship with God. That's what reconciliation means. A relationship with God now and forever. It means um, actually avoiding coming judgment, saved from that judgment. That's, that's a big part of what salvation means. Where does Peter get this idea? There is no other name. Um, if, you, uh, if you go into our Story of God course, which anybody who has, and I hope you do, um, we'll have three coming up here really quick. You go into our six week story of God course and you go in with this idea of no other name, you're gonna see it everywhere. It's from the very beginning. Uh, it eventually, because the whole Old Testament points to Jesus, it, it, it eventually points um, to Jesus, but it's, it's like in every nook and cranny and line of the story, is the idea of no other name. Uh, many times the Bible just comes right out and says that one of them is Jesus talking to his disciples, and they're like, "Well, you're, you say you're going, but how are we going to get to where you're going? How are we, we going to get there? Because he's talking about going to the Father, and uh, how are we going to get access to there? How are we going to?" He says, "You know me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me." That's his answer. To their angst that he's 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 leaving he's going. Now this about as countercultural as you can get today. To believe in the no other name. Uh, Jesus, I mean this in a world that was highly highly pluralistic where there were all kinds of ways the church from beginning to end always stood on the idea that there is no other way. There are, Jesus is not just one of many great options. He's not even one, like the best option and a bunch of bad options. They easily could have gone that direction. Jesus could have gone that direction. Because they lived in a world surrounded by, Jesus lived three miles away from a Greco-Roman city when he was growing up. Nazareth is right from a, a city that has... All the arts and had, you know, which, which Jews would never go. I mean, he, he, it's permeated. Even in Jerusalem, it permeated their lives. And certainly all the Jews living in the Roman Empire, they're surrounded by people who believe in other gods. You can say, well, no, Jesus is a better God. Your gods are okay. Jesus is a better God. You can follow him and it would be better for you. It's not the message. The message is there, there is no other God and there is no other name. And you can't, there, there, there's not another way. Now, many Christians don't believe this. Many of you don't believe this. Not not in your heart of hearts. You really don't believe this, because it runs countercultural. Counter, it runs counter to our entire way of thinking. It creates what psychologists call cognitive dissonance. You heard that term before. Okay, so the cognitive thinking, um, a sense of dissonance. It's like it doesn't fit with just all the things I take for granted. Just to, I mean, I, I can't even, call, maybe can't even call it out. It just, it doesn't fit in a way of thinking and, it, and you're taking a foreign concept. And so what we do when we have cognitive dissonance is either we, we wrestle with it and learn to live in some tension because we can't stop thinking the way that we're thinking. I can't stop thinking that way. But I wrestle with it and live with the tension or what we usually do, we relieve the tension well, certainly it's not true, certainly it's some vestige of something, and we just kind of throw it out. You know the story of the six blind men and the elephant, right? It's an old fable from India, probably even goes, goes way, way back. It's applied in all kinds of ways. It's, it's a great fable. It applies to a lot of things with regard to our biases and everything. The six blind men come up to an elephant, each one touches a part of the elephant. And so one says, well, the elephant's like a tree because he's holding on to the leg. And another one says, the elephant's like a rope because he's holding on to the tail. Another one uh, touches the, the stomach and says, it's a wall. The elephant's like a wall. And the idea that is often, this is the part we don't agree with, at, at least Christianity, historic Christianity doesn't believe in this application. Great applications, not this one. Well, that's like, the elephant is God. The six blind men are the world's religions in each one. Just gets it right, part of it right, and, and, but they all get a lot of it wrong. And if we just learn to talk to each other and figure it out, we'll, we'll come out in the end with something, some facsimile of God, or stay in your religion, but don't, don't share your religion with me. That kind of idea. Now, Christianity believes that you can't know God comprehensively. It's not like, oh, we got the whole elephant. You know, every nook and cranny. I can tell you everything about the elephant that there is to be known. No, no, we, we can't tell you. God is too big. We can't know him comprehensively. But we do believe that, uh, and I hope I'm not being sacrilegious in saying this, if the elephant is God, we do believe that the elephant can talk. And we do believe that he has spoken. And we do believe that he has not only acted and spoken, that he has interacted in history. Human history. He's acted in our lives. And we believe he is personal and has a name and has actually revealed his name to us. That's bedrock historic Christianity. And because his name is his character, And because he is personal, personal, not some power, not a transcendent power, amorphous power, there is no other name. Because if you attach another name to him, you're attaching character traits, lifestyle choices that do not belong to him. If you diminish his name by attaching other names, or um, that, especially names that will always have, not especially, every other name will have character traits that don't apply to him. Logically and out of integrity, just out of plain integrity, you have no grounds for all the other things that come with his name, his character. You've got no other grounds. Like what? Like what? You might be asking. Well, for example, you have no grounds beyond your own personal preferences for compassion and justice for the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. Eastern religions don't teach that. They're just going through a cycle. And you wouldn't want to interrupt it because they're going to come out of it when they die better off for their suffering and marginalization. Um, Secular philosophies and theologies uh, don't teach that. They can't. I mean, there's no ground in secularism for that because the marginalized and the poor have, well, when they're especially when generations of poverty, they're just not the fittest. And is you know, do you really want to completely interrupt? And I guess you can come with a you know, well, maybe we should help the. The not fittest that are not surviving, but why? If you're fit. And if it's going to take away from you. Uh, Islam, it depends whether you're part of Islam or not. Whether you're going to take care of the, the marginalized. So, uh, only Christianity and only cultures that have been impacted by Christianity and Judaism value compassion and justice for the have-nots. All right, so, if you take out the name of, of, of Jesus in the name of God you really aren't and you start saying well all you know you've you've got no grounding beyond personal when, when we diminish the name by saying that all ways lead to one way uh, and we eliminate the distinctiveness of Christianity we're ultimately saying goodbye uh, to the foundations for basic human rights and even freedom we are it's only in the soil that has been populated, the thought world that has been populated by Christianity, that human freedom and basic human rights have has flourished. It didn't. It didn't happen in ancient Greece and Rome, even Greece in its golden age. No, nope. freedom, democracy, all of that was for the top one percent. That was it. Slavery was rampant. There was no force, like a Wilberforce or others like that, out of Christianity to say this is wrong in the name of God freedom basic human rights equality you're just saying goodbye to that it'll flourish for a while as long as it's in but you've got no grounding for it you really have no grounding for it when you reject the idea that there's no other name this this is the one (laughs) that I wish I could spend all my time talking about but this is the end you take out the grit out of Christianity and you take away what makes it resilient. You just, you completely dilute it. It's down to almost nothing if you just stop and think. Just stop and think. That's what I'm just asking those of you who follow Jesus. Stop and think about this. There is no compelling reason to sacrifice now for the kingdom so that others might be saved and so that the hurting might be helped. If everything just works out in the wash, there's no compelling reason for me to sacrifice money, time. There's no reason for any of us to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. There is no reason. We've diluted it down to a Christianity that is, well, it's just a good way to live, which makes a lot of sense for suburban, individualized Western Christians, you know, where our lives are... You know, aside from diseases that can break in and stuff like that, but we don't have to worry about marauding hordes and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Okay, so so that, that kind of Christianity makes sense, but it's not biblical Christianity. You've turned it into something else. Stop. It's like, don't even call it Christianity. Because Christianity is something you die for, something you sacrifice for. There's no compelling reason to suffer and die for the sake of Jesus' name. Um, when you change this in your mind to any other name, you've changed the very character of Christianity. There is nothing on the line anymore. Do you understand? There's nothing on the line. If everything is going to work out in the wash, there's nothing on the line. Everything that Jesus said, everything is on the line. There is a judgment coming. You will have to answer to God, I have come to die so that you can be free in this world, free from evil powers, so that you can be free to live forever, so that you will not be judged and separated from God. All of that goes away. All of that goes away. There's nothing on the line. So why sacrifice for it? Why give to your church? Unless you just think of your church, a nice club, keeps my kids in line, you know? Let them believe those little stories, because they believe those little stories, they'll behave better, and my life will be a little easier. Until it doesn't, that doesn't work anymore, because they're hooligans. <laughs> and then you just walk away from the church. Well, that didn't work, right? Sorry, though. None of, no hooligans in here. It's other people's kids. If you believe in the end that all ways lead to the same thing, there's no compelling reason. And this, this is the one that breaks my heart. There's no compelling reason for your kids to believe in what you believe in. None. It's, it's a Christianity that has no resilience. It can't be passed on. What? Sacrifice? And what? For what? I mean, we've taken Jesus who comes to die for us because of our sins. Because of our sin and because of sin, evil. He comes to die for that. We've turned them into someone. You know, we go from, you know, the analogy that I love is that the idea that, you know, if I fall off a boat and I don't know how to swim and someone jumps in and saves me and dies while saving me, they died to save me from drowning. The Jesus in many of our minds that many, many of us have is someone who stands up in the boat and says, I love you, and drowns himself because nothing was on the line. I hadn't fallen in. It was all going to work out in the end. It just So this doesn't speak, this is why I said this is hard, because this doesn't speak to, but what about? All our but what about questions, or uh, but that's not fair statements. I share them with you. I feel them. I said, I can't stop thinking. You can't stop thinking. All I can say, there's some things I can say to that, but, but let, me, let me just say this because this is what it ultimately comes down to. Can we trust the God of grace and justice with our misgivings and struggles with this idea? Can we just, can we trust him with all our what about, and that's just not fair questions? Is he trustworthy? I don't know. You have to determine that for yourself. Can we trust him? Can we trust the one who is broken for you? Who's filled his life for you? There is no other name. Will we seek to live this conviction? This is the last question. Will we seek to live this conviction deep in our bones and with a loving, ethical, sacrificial lifestyle? that flows from it. Let's pray.